North is going to tell us about a few of the other things happening across all of our campuses. Our Uganda team from Half Moon in Saratoga is back, and what a trip they had. From the first day they arrived, they hit the ground running. While they were there, the team was able to treat hundreds of children in this temporary clinic they set up. They set up a computer room for the schools we support in Masesi, played with kids and loved on them constantly, and visited the Masesi slum four times to pray and give blessing bags to the poor, widows, and sick. And that's just some of the story. Praise God for the work our church was able to do and the love we were able to share with our brothers and sisters in Masesi. In addition to that, our Guatemala family missions trip is officially underway. Our team just left this Saturday, the 11th, headed for the jungles of Central America. This week, Families from Grace will be working with the staff and kids at the Hearts and Action Jungle School. They also are planning to do ministry and outreach in the communities surrounding our ministry partners there. Please pray for each member of our team, that God would show them new things, that they would surrender to Him as they minister to the precious people of Guatemala. As we've been learning in this sermon series from the book of Luke, part of being a good disciple of Jesus means learning to handle our money well. For some of us, that can be a real sore spot. We have goals to pay off debt, save more, give more, spend smarter, but somehow we just can't seem to get traction. Sound familiar? If that's you, I wanna tell you about a truly amazing class we offer here at Grace. It's Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. FPU is a nine week video class where you'll learn some genuinely valuable ways to manage money biblically. And you may even make some great friends along the way. Literally thousands of people have taken FPU at Grace and changed their financial lives for the better. This September, we have classes starting at all four of our Grace Fellowship campuses. But these classes tend to fill up fast, so don't wait until September. Check out the FPU page on our website and register today. Our 2020 vision campaign continues to roll along. And it's my pleasure to tell you that we've officially moved past our bronze fundraising goal. We're in silver territory now. Way to go, church. And thank you to everyone who's been giving so faithfully to this campaign. Keep up the good work. In addition to that, the Half Moon expansion is just about finished. And on Sunday, September 9th, our ministry teams at Half Moon will welcome kids and students into that space for the very first time. And finally, as that project concludes, we're looking forward to our first project at Grace Latham. We're going to be building a safe and secure hallway that will connect our kids' wing to the student center at the end of the Grace Latham facility. We're looking to begin work on that during the fall, and we have a lot more to say about that project and the other Latham projects that are part of the campaign's silver phase. But as always, if you'd like to know more about 2020 Vision, there's lots to read and watch on our campaign homepage. And now, I'm gonna hand things off to Pastor Rex. Today, he's going to talk about gratitude. Pastor Rex, it's all yours. That's a great update, and I'd like to say welcome to everyone at each of our, uh, and all of our campuses. And uh, we're so glad that you've chosen uh, to come together and be in worship today. 
You know, uh, your personality is one of the most important things about you. And we're in a little sub-series right now in the book of Luke where we're talking about Jesus, architect of my personality. Here's the focus. We're talking about some of those traits that he wants to build into us and build them in such a strong way that they just kind of are a part of us. We, we have this sort of unconscious competence. We, we just display these things. We just do these things without even thinking about it much. It truly becomes a part of who we are. Now, I got to tell you, the one we talk about today, gratitude, is probably my favorite of all of them. Here's why I say that. Through many years now of ministry, I've concluded that gratitude creates more positive emotional energy than any other attitude we can have. I mean, I look for this trait in people that I want to work with, in people that I want to kind of do life with, that I want to start a project with. To me, this is just one of those things that's indispensable. Whining people tend to be joyless, miserable complainers. But people who are grateful tend to be filled with joy and optimism and positiveness and hope about the future. Back on June the 6th, 2017, a very intriguing article entitled, How Gratitude Changes You and Your Brain came out with some amazing findings on the power of gratitude. The authors, Joel Wong and Joshua Brown, report how that many extensive studies, and their research is actually a bit overwhelming, have found that people who consciously count their blessings, their words, not mine, tend to be happier and less depressed. Most promising, they report, is that this is true, quote, not just for healthy, well-adjusted individuals, but also for those who struggle with mental health concerns. And they conclude that gratitude just has a way of unshackling us from toxic emotions. In another sort of landmark article on this, back in November 20th, 2017, Jamie Ducharme reports seven, surpri seven surprising health benefits of gratitude. And when you read through those, it's almost too good to believe. Jamie lists things like gratitude can make you more patient, improve your relationships, help you sleep better, prevent you from overeating, improve your self-care, help ease depression, and give you happiness that lasts. Unbelievable. I mean, no wonder Scripture urges us to give thanks in all circumstances. Perhaps that's the reason G.K. Chesterton called gratitude the mother of all virtues. And I really believe it is. The psalmist just explodes with joy when he says in Psalm 30, You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. You see, God wants your personality and mine just to radiate and overflow and bubble up with genuine thankfulness 
and gratitude to God. Isaac Walton said, God has two dwelling places, heaven and a humble, thankful heart. So let me ask you, how thankful are you today? How much does gratitude play into your daily life and kind of the way you operate? And particularly, how grateful do you feel as you go through life day by day? As we study this amazing story from Jesus today in, in Luke's gospel, chapter 17, I pray that God will do a deep and abiding work in all of us and that through this teaching and through the Spirit's work, we will become genuinely far more grateful as we make our way on this journey of life. So let's jump in. Verse 11 reads, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, these guys lived a living hell every day. Leprosy was a terminal, incurable disease that ate away at the nerve endings. And so your extremities, your fingers, uh, toes, hands, uh, your limbs basically lost their ability to feel. And so they would be easily damaged. Uh, they often looked repulsive. Even your nose and ears would often fall off in advanced stages of leprosy. And so your body would be so deformed, often there would be these open, oozing sores. Leprosy also was believed to be contagious. So in addition to the horrible physical consequences, some believe that even worse were the social, emotional consequences. Because once a person was found to be leprous, they were quarantined, shut off from family and friends. They had to live in these hideous leper colonies and never have contact with their families again in a close or intimate way. And so it basically was a sentence to be cut off from everyone you loved and cared about. And even unsuspecting strangers, if they were approaching you, you were supposed to cry out, unclean, unclean. What a horrible existence. So you can imagine their excitement. Jesus was their only sense of hope for any return to normalcy. So when he drew near, no wonder they cried out, have pity on us, have pity. And Jesus did. He commanded them, look, go show yourselves to the priest. Now, I find it interesting how often Jesus would ask people to do something to kind of participate or be involved in a miracle that he was going to do. Stretch out that withered hand. Take up your bed and walk. Uh, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And here, he tells them, go, show yourselves to the priest. 
And their obedience was a testimony of their faith. And it was like a, if you will, a channel of God's healing power. As these men went, they found themselves healed. We can only imagine the joy. We can only imagine the shock, the wonder of it all. Their sores were gone. Their skin was clear. Their bodies were whole. Their features were normal. And you know, they had to celebrate. They must have been dancing and squealing with delight and jumping up and down. There must have been shouts of joy. But I want you to notice now as we go on, something that happened that's interesting. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And then Luke throws in this little phrase, and he was a Samaritan. Ha. Huh. Now, if you've been trekking with our study through Luke, you know to expect the unexpected. Luke often in the stories will include a real twist like this, a zinger, a surprise at the end where we kind of sit back and say, wow, I didn't see that coming. Because you know that the Samaritans were a despised race. And so this man had grown up feeling the sting of ostracism and racism toward him. And he was despised and discriminated against by many. But now when he's cured, he's the only one who returned to Jesus to say, thank you. And Jesus was delighted with his gratitude and Christ was disappointed with the others. Verse 17, Jesus asked, we're not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. What a question, huh? Where are the other nine? Fred Craddock is a favorite or was a favorite speaker of mine, and uh, he is deceased at this point, but he was a preaching professor for decades and taught whole generations how to be more effective in proclamation. And he asked the question, wouldn't it be interesting to interview these guys who had been healed and ask them, why didn't you go back and say thanks? I wonder what those interviews would reveal. One might say, well, family first, my friend. Family comes first. I've been quarantined from them. So once I saw that I had been cleansed, look, I'm going to devote all my time to family. Another might say, I didn't go back and thank him because I was afraid to. You know what I heard? I heard that he told one guy to sell all he had and give to the poor. I mean, I heard that he teaches things like, take up your cross daily and follow me. I'm not sure I want to have anything to do with that. Or another might say, I know I got better, but I, I think it might be a coincidence. I'm not sure it's linked to Jesus. You see, I've been trying these home remedies out, you know, and we've been crushing up some herbs, and we've got these psychedelic mushrooms that are amazing. I think that might be the reason, not Jesus. Or to be honest, I'm not real sure. It's an advantage to be healed, another might say. 
Now I got to go to get a job. And I still don't like the way I look. Yeah, I got healed, but I still don't look all that great. I mean, if Jesus can heal me, why can't he look me, make me look better than this? Or I'm cured, but I just can't rejoice because there's so many others out there who are still suffering. I mean, how can I go back and celebrate and express thanks when there's so many others out there in the world suffering like I was? Another might say, look, I, I just did what I was told to do, so get off my back. I just went to the priest. Or I'm grateful, but I didn't know he expected me to go back. I mean, isn't this his job? Doesn't he get paid for this? And finally, one might say, well, you know, life's been busy since we got healed. I mean, there's a book contract, big book coming out. I mean, there's been TV interviews. We've been on Good Morning America. And this afternoon, all 10 of us are getting together for a photo opportunity because we're doing this ad for New York Lotto, you know? It's like you never know, right? And, and so we had our own miracle here. It's like we won the lottery, but whatever their reasons, only one returned. But let me ask you, isn't that typical? I mean, ask the school teachers among us, professors, people who train and teach and mentor others. How many students after graduation ever come back and say, thank you? Ask the doctors and nurses. How many after a successful operation ever return to say thanks or write a note of appreciation. Ask moms. How many times does a child come and say, Mom, you know, I had clean socks and underwear in my drawer today, and I just want to thank you for that. Dad, thank you. It's wonderful living in this house. Ask nursery workers in the church. Sound techs, light engineers who work in the church, people who serve in various capacities. Ask them how often people come around and say thank you for the service that you provide. Or if you really want to know, ask God. How many people, once their prayer has been answered, ever come back and say, God, thank you. I know I didn't deserve that, but thank you for that amazing answer to prayer. I'm convinced that not many people return. William Barclay, one of, the, one of the commentators we're reading as we go through this series, said, so often when a man has gotten what he wants, he never comes back. But now let's ask this question. In light of all of our abundance and all of our blessings, and indeed they are many, we are so blessed in this culture, in this society, in this country, why are we not very grateful people? Well, there's probably dozens of reasons, but I just want to highlight today three that I believe are possible explanations. One might be early expectations about what life would be. Now, let's be candid. An attitude of gratitude is easier for some of us than for others. I really believe that. Let me illustrate from my own life. I think some of you are aware. I grew up on a cotton farm in Middle Tennessee, southern Middle Tennessee. And so, um, from, since the whole family, I'm the youngest of seven children, and all the children, mom and dad, were out in the fields working. That's, that was the work crew, and that's just what you did. 
And the manual labor was amazingly uh, tedious and difficult. And so I'll never forget when my mother explained to Debbie uh, that when I was just a little infant, a little baby who couldn't crawl around much, uh, my mom would put me in a cardboard box and kind of push it under the shade of the cotton wagon that sat there in the edge of the field and pray that no snake would get in there or spider get in there and bite me. And then she would go down her row and pick her cotton. And then when you became a little toddler, you'd kind of waddle along behind your mom, your dad, your brothers and sisters, uh, but you were just, just sticking around them. You couldn't work yet. But when you get about five or six, you're old enough to drag a cotton sack. And so you get a little six-foot child's cotton sack, and even though you can't really take a whole row of cotton at this point, you couldn't keep up with the others, uh, you just kind of go along and pick a little from everybody's row and put a little bit in your sack. But then you graduate to a nine-foot cotton sack. This is a canvas, tough canvas bag with a strap around the shoulder, and you stuff cotton down in there as you pick it out of these bowls of cotton in these rows, and you drag that sack, and it gets to be 30, 40, 50, 60 pounds. And that's hard to drag, and you do this all day long, sun up, sun down, in the blazing sun. Now, that's the way I grew up. And you'd empty the sack, and then you'd start right out and fill it up again and come back and empty the cotton sack in the wagon all day long. So what I'm saying to you is that my set point of expectations was very low. I've often said that any day after picking cotton is a good day. Any day. Really being that. Um, I, I had a, a, a job delivering pizza when I was in seminary. Dream job after picking cotton. Okay? I had a job once as a teenager uh, at the junior high and high school in our town, and I would mow the football field and the baseball field, just tedious. A push mower, little bitty swath. All day long, blaze dream job compared to picking cotton. For three weeks once that summer, I spent three weeks at the junior high and high school just scraping chewing gum. You know how students take their gum, put it up underneath the chair or the table? Scrubbing chewing gum off of chairs and tables. Three weeks, dream job compared to picking cotton. And so honestly, I don't need any credit for this, but it's just easy for me to be grateful. We couldn't take a vacation when I was growing up because you couldn't get away from the farm work and all the farm animals. You had to feed them. There was so much to do. So we never, ever, I mean this, ever had a vacation. And so when I get a vacation now, I'm ecstatic. I mean, it's so easy for me to be grateful. Some of you grew up pampered as children. Grandparents and parents lavish gifts on you and wonderful experiences. Don't feel guilty about that. That's wonderful. Celebrate that. Be grateful. My point is, though, it may be harder for you to kind of be grateful. Because your set point in life, your expectation set point was way up here possibly. And so now, if life is not 100% perfect, you may not be able to rejoice easily. You move into a new house, oh, but you can't appreciate it because you know what? They didn't make that room exactly like we wanted it to be. You go out to a wonderful restaurant, but you're bent out of shape because I can't believe that server brought the main course before I finished my salad. Why did he do that? Just wrecked my evening. You come to church, wonderful service, great worship, but 
you're all bent out of shape because you didn't get greeted properly. And they, they projected a misspelled word up there. Did you see that? That wrecked my worship right there. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. In other words, this world's contaminated by sin. It's not going to be perfect. But if we have unrealistic expectations because of possibly a privileged upbringing, we may never be grateful for what God has done. I think another contributing factor to ingratitude may be the people with whom we hang out. Now, I want to tell you, the folks you do life with, the folks close to you, your closest associates have a bigger impact on you than you probably realize. Proverbs 13, 20 is a favorite verse of mine. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. The keener paraphrase of that is, you can't soar like an eagle if you hang with turkeys, okay? That's what that's really saying. And I want to tell you, some of you have friends and associates and co-workers, and they're just so negative and complaining and crotchety. Honestly, honestly, it's hard for you to be grateful. Some of you may need to tweak your friend list a little bit. I'm not talking about your Facebook friend list. I'm talking about the people that you kind of hang out with. Because if you're around really negative people, it is going to rub off on you. By the way, that's why we make such a huge emphasis around here. That's why we implore you and urge you and virtually beg you constantly, please get in a small group. Please build meaningful relationships that God can use to help you grow and progress. And if you will, I'm going to make you a promise. If you will Velcro your life to two things, I assure you, you will see positive change. One, Velcro your life to the Bible, God's word. And two, get in with some positive, growing, optimistic, hope-filled Christian people who can go on the journey with you, Velcro your life to them, and you, are, you better watch out. You're going to see some amazing changes coming down the pike, and it's going to be good. I think another huge factor that can foster ingratitude is comparing your lot in life with others. Now, I put that phrase, lot in life, in uh, quotation marks here for a purpose. That is a very rich phrase historically. Psalm 16 reads, Lord, you have assigned me my portion in my cup. You have made my, here's the word, you have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Now, the original background of that is referring back to when the 12 tribes of Israel settled in the promised land, you can read this in the Old Testament, and God designated for them through Joshua and their other leaders, he designated for them certain plots of land with dimensions and boundary lines. And it's all spelled out there. And that's where, that's where this tribe is going to settle and live. And that's where this tribe is going to settle and live. And all but the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, they all got these allotments of land. And so that was their lot in life. So it's taken on a metaphorical meaning. Your situation in life is your lot 
in life. That's what you're given to work with. But we get discontented many times when we begin comparing our lot, our situation with that of others. And we do this all the time. Athletes compare with athletes. Oh, that guy's getting more. I had more points than he. I averaged more than he did, but I'm getting paid a little less, and we're not happy. CEOs compare with CEOs, professors with professors, homemakers with homemakers, pastors with pastors. I think we pastors are the worst bunch of all. We look at other pastors of other churches, we go, well, they wouldn't be growing like that. They've got to be compromising somewhere. And it's just jealousy. But this kind of comparison game plagues us all, and it leads to an ungrateful heart. Jesus told a parable about workers in a vineyard who were delighted to start working early in the morning. They were just grateful to have a job, and they were promised a denarius for the day's work. That was a standard day's pay for a day of work, and they were happy to get it. But then they learned toward the end of the day that there were other workers who had worked only a fraction of the time they had, and they received the same pay. And all of a sudden, those who had worked all day were unhappy and protested the inequity of it all. And I want to assure you, if you compare your life with others that you perceive have it better, you are always going to be filled with discontentment. That's why scripture urges in 2 Corinthians, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Why are they not wise? Because the comparison game just eats you up with discontentment and envy and jealousy and ungratefulness. So let's turn a major corner here as we go down home stretch, and let's just ask this question. How can we become more grateful people? It's obvious that God values this virtue in us and wants it to bubble up out of us. How can we get there? Quickly, I want to give four suggestions. One, it all begins, I, I think this is the foundation of it all, by understanding that God is the source of every good thing in your life. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Every good and perfect gift, James says, comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Now, we call it ours. I say my house, my car, you know, my money, my body. They're not mine. They're just loaned to me. I don't own them. God owns it all. I'm just managing and I'm called to be a good steward of it, and I ought to be grateful that I get to use it for a while. Bob Russell shares a very helpful illustration here that I really like. He says, imagine that a very wealthy man in your town says, hey, I'm going to be leaving the country for two months or four months. I, to be honest with you, I don't really know how long. It, it could be even up to a year, but I just need someone to come and stay at my house, you know, for free, just come and stay there. And you happen to know that he has the most palatial mansion in the whole area. It's unbelievable. I mean, it, it's like a spa. It, it's incredible. You can't find words for this place. 
He's got an unbelievable pool area and backyard. I mean, he's got a Maserati and says, look, just drive my car around, have fun in it. Just come and sleep in my house. Just live there. Have your friends over. You can have parties if you want to. That's great. Just enjoy it. I just need someone to stay there, okay, while I'm gone. And so you, with great excitement, come and move in. And for four months, you have the time of your life. But then, after four months, he calls and says he's coming back in a week. Now, would you be upset? Would you be angry? Would you shake your fist at him and go, look, I've been cheated here? No. That'd be silly. You would just be so grateful for every day you had the privilege of occupying that house. We don't own anything. And God gives us the privilege of living in his world for a period of time, and it's all gift. Life is a gift. Whether it lasts five days, or five years, or 50 years, or 105 years, it's all a gift. And we ought to be grateful for every single day he gives us. The second thing that would increase our gratitude, I'm convinced, is if we intentionally spend some time with people who have less. One of the reasons we're sending 11 mission teams this year on these robust mission trips where we go and actually seek to minister to people and do some real good in the world and share the gospel of Jesus Christ while we're doing it. One of the reasons that I, one of the greatest blessings is that you see people often who are living in incredible poverty. And hopefully you come home realizing, wow, I've got it so good in this life. And we need to be around people like that. Carl Menninger was asked by a patient what he should do if he felt a nervous breakdown coming on. And Menninger's response is classic. He said, I'll tell you what I would do. I'd leave my house, I'd lock the door behind me, I'd go across the tracks, whatever that means in your town, and I'd find some neighborhood, some community where people are in genuine need, and I would find a need and I would begin to serve those people and meet that need. He's saying even healthy, a healthy mental state is based upon realizing I've got it so much better, and oh, I need to be pouring out for others. I think a third way we can possibly increase our gratitude is to seek to eradicate grumbling and complaining from your life any way you can. So here's what, uh, something I'm not sure we all realize, that grumbling incurs God's wrath. Let me tell you why I say that. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you'll see there a passage where the Apostle Paul writes, and he says, look, all these things that happened to God's people in the old covenant time, they were written for our instruction. We can learn from that stuff. And he says, don't be idolaters as some of them were. And he says, don't commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And he describes each time what happened to them. And don't test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And then he says, and do not grumble, this is verse 10, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. I can't believe that. He couples there 
idolatry and adultery and testing God. I get why those are bad. That's easy to see. He couples those with grumbling, a spirit of discontentment and ingratitude incurs the wrath of God. That's why Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without complaining or arguing. I think some of you are specialists at complaining, and you honestly don't realize how gifted you are in this area. <laughs> I'm serious. You, you don't realize the level of your gifting. You are gifted complainers. Oh, it's been so dry. It's been so dry. When is it going to rain? Oh, it's raining. It's been raining all day. When's it going to stop raining? I'm so tired of the road. It's been so hot outside. But wouldn't you agree? It's too cold in here. It's too cold in here. I'll guarantee you that. Oh, my arthritis has been acting up again. I can't believe it. My Bible study is boring. When is our group leader going to learn how to teach? My church isn't meeting my needs. Oh. I would urge you to get a trusted, mature friend and say, look, this is a problem for me. I'm not grateful enough, and I whine way too much, and I complain. Listen, and I want to get a handle on this. I want to overcome this. Would you help me? So if you, it, I, I, do, I don't even realize I'm doing it. It's just a part of me now. Would you just kind of tap me on the shoulder or something when you hear me doing it and just kind of give me a wink and I'll know, okay, okay I'm, I'm going off and I didn't even realize it. Or would you just smack me in the face or something if you hear me grumbling again or look me in the eye and go, whiner, whiner, 49er. <laughs> something to get my attention because this is a genuine problem and if you knew how unattractive this is in your personality, I think you'd want to stop. I really do, because nobody wants to go and be around a person. Oh, I just love to hear them gripe. Just love it. Let's just go be around them. I just love to hear them complain and go on and on. No. It is hurting you more than you realize. Get a handle on it, please. And one final thing, practice thanksgiving when you feel like it and when you don't. First Thessalonians reads, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. First Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. We will not be complaining ungrateful people. So listen to some of these factual statements Statistics from around the world, if you can read your Bible today, you are more blessed than over 2 billion people in the world who are illiterate, who've never had the privilege of learning how to read. If you woke up this morning with more health than illness, you are more blessed than 1 million people who will not survive this week. If you've never experienced the danger of battle, loneliness, of imprisonment, pangs of starvation, listen, you're ahead of over 500 million people in the world, and if you have food in your refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, and at least $20 in your pocket, you are richer than 75% of the people in the world. 
isn't it time to just praise God a little bit? Isn't it time just to say, God, I'm done with complaining and griping and being, yeah, I'm just done with it. God, I'm done with it. I, forgive me for being such a whiner. Help me to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. I close with this. John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, shares an amazing story about his friend, Tom Smith, who loved to visit a nursing home. And one day, he went down a wing of the nursing home. He had not gone down before, and it was, now mind you, this is one of those places most of us would feel pretty uncomfortable. The, the smells and the sounds and, and just the whole atmosphere would make most of us not want to go there in the first place and certainly not go back. But Tom regularly went, and he brought some flowers this day and was giving flowers to some of the nursing home patients, and he said there was one woman who seemed to be the worst of all. He knew from her blank stare at the wall that she was blind, but also there was this real deformity on her face where cancer had eaten away a large portion here, and there was this open, gaping wound, and she just perpetually drooled uncontrollably, and it was... It was honestly repulsive. And he, he stuck out a flower and said, here, happy Mother's Day. And Tom Smith said, her response surprised me. Though it was garbled, she expressed a very clear mind. And she said, well, thank you very much. It's lovely. But would you mind if I gave it to somebody else? Because I can't see. Yeah. So he said, I, I took her wheelchair and I wheeled her down the hallway to a place where there were some more alert patients. And as she stretched out her hand to give the flower to somebody who took it, she said, this is from Jesus. And Tom Smith said, I realized right then that this was no ordinary human being. So from that time forth, once or twice a week, when I'd go back to visit the nursing home, I would stop and visit her. And I found out her name was Mabel. And she'd grown, grown up single never married, uh, lived on a farm, and she and her mother served there, worked there, and her mother had died, and eventually she became blind and couldn't take care of herself, and so she was confined to this convalescent home, and now she was 89 years old and had been there for 25 years. She had recently contracted cancer. And he said, I'd read the Bible to her, and she would quote passages and sometimes sing songs, and I knew she really loved the Lord. And one day I asked her, Mabel, as you lie here all day long, what do you think about? And she said, I just think about my Jesus. And Tom Smith said, I, I have trouble thinking about Jesus for five minutes. She thinks about him all day long. And then he asked her, well, what do you think about him? And she said, I just think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me, you know. Jesus is all the world to me. And then she broke into song. My life, my joy, my all. He's my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I'm sad, to him I go. No other friend can cheer me so. When I'm sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. And Tom Smith says, that's... That's not a woman denying reality. That's a woman whose personality has been transformed by Jesus Christ. And in the midst of blindness, cancer, pain, and loneliness, she has this incredibly effervescent personality because of gratitude. It's indeed 
the mother of all virtues. God, forgive me when I whine. I have two legs, the world is mine. I have two ears, the world is mine. I have two eyes, the world is mine. With eyes to see the sunset glow, with ears to hear what I would know, with legs to take me where I would go, God, forgive me when I whine. I'm blessed indeed. The world is mine. Father, forgive us when we whine. In light of all our blessings, not to mention forgiveness of sins and eternity with you, wow, how could we ever have an ungrateful attitude? So God, help us here. May this become such a part of our personality, it would literally bubble up and ooze over and bless people all around us because we have an attitude of gratitude and it's rooted in a relationship with you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.